There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. Today on the show, I'm joined by my buddy, Doug Durant. He's a frequent contributor to various meat eater podcasts and television episodes, as well as a wildlife and habitat management consultant out of the Driftless region of Wisconsin. And he's also one of the experts we brought out to the Back 40 last fall to review what we had there and to talk through different ideas and to hunt the farm with me. So in our conversation today, I want to cover a lot of topics along those lines. We're going to discuss with Doug how he came to his current conservation ethic, how he attempts to balance hunting and ecosystem goals on any property he works with, how to think about native and invasive species management, ideas for improving the back 40, and a bunch more like that. Uh, so, So fascinating stuff. But we also do spend some time in the beginning talking about just just the current event of the moment, uh, the global COVID-19 pandemic that's just sucked the oxygen out of every room. Uh, it's all-encompassing right now. None of you guys listening are surprised by this, I know, because it's, it's everywhere. It's changed everything about our daily lives right now. Um, I just didn't, I, I don't think there's any way we could have the podcast this week without at least addressing the elephant in the room a little bit. So we're going to touch on that, uh, just kind of share our thoughts and feelings right now. Look at some of the weird parallels between this situation and that surrounding CWD. Um, we even go into a little bit about how all of this right now might impact future conservation efforts. Uh, so it's some interesting stuff, but rest assured, the majority of the show, we're going to talk about conservation and wildlife management and habitat improvements and, and, and philosophies around working with the land. It's great stuff. I think you'll enjoy it. It should take your mind off of some of the negativity out there right now, and uh, and I'm looking forward to you guys all giving it a listen. So that's the plan for today. No intro session with Dan yet. I think he'll be with us next week, though, so tune in for that. So without further ado, let's get into it and get Doug Duran on the line. All right, I got Doug Duran back with me on the show. Doug, thanks for making the time to do this. Well, this is... Uh great social distancing here getting to talk to you and uh, <laughs> both from the the uh 
the privacy and safety of our own offices. I know it's becoming uh, the new normal for people all over the country right now is video conferences and Skype chats and and all that. But I was talking to Ben O'Brien yesterday that I've been doing this. I've been self-quarantined for six years, sitting in my home office every day by myself. So this isn't too different for me. Well, right. And the same, you know, I, I, as you, as you know, I'm, I'm self-employed and, and uh, so I have, uh, I work from home um, and most of my work is, um, around the state in the Midwest, um, that I travel to. And then of course I have the farm nearby, which, you know, it's easy to self quarantine out there. I'm just dealing with, uh, some Herefords and, and, uh, their calves and calving seasons coming up and living here in Casanova, you know, population 325, it's pretty easy to social, socially distance yourself. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, um, I was, contemplating what I wanted to do this week in the podcast. And I had an original plan that I threw out the window just because of current events. And I selfishly wanted to, to, I wanted to have someone I could talk to about what's going on right now a little bit that, that had a little bit more wisdom than me. And I, I jumped to you. I saw, I want to talk about the fun stuff. I want to talk about the back 40 and the time we spent together I want to talk about what's going on on the Duran farm and spring habitat projects and conservation ideas and, and, and news and, and all that kind of good stuff. But I guess I don't think we can ignore, you know, what's happening around us right now. As you said, social distancing, coronavirus, the pandemic. I mean, life has changed over the last week dramatically. Um, it's It's hard to escape. And part of me wants this to be an escape. Like the, part of me wants the podcast to be an escape. But I also kind of feel like it also maybe just selfishly for me is a place to 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 release a little bit of the tension around it too and, and talk about it. I don't know. How how are you processing what's going on around us right now? How are you feeling about things? Um, what's the Doug Duran wisdom that I need to hear right now? Um, well, not and certainly not to panic, but um to take this very seriously is is um isn't the number one message. I guess if I've learned anything in um, 61 years and then <clears throat> working with, with people like Brian Richards at the USGS Wildlife Health Center, and um, as I think I told you, Mark, my daughter is uh, completing her master's in public health at DePaul University, and um, she's studying um, emergency preparedness. Um, and that's her area of, of, that's her master's thesis. And it's, you know, it's kind of stunning to me that that's going on. So as you can imagine talking with her, I was on the phone with her last night about what she's doing. And, um, you know, the biggest thing is that as you, you, you being a relatively uh, new, uh, parent and now a parent of a second one, you, you realize that your life isn't as, um, your individual life takes on a whole different meaning when you start caring for, you know, someone else. And and I can never describe what it has been like to be a father to me, but it, it, um, it extends to the whole idea of, you know, it's not ours, it's just our turn and caring for um, the, you know, honoring the past and caring for the future. And if there's anything that, that points that out, it's this, this kind of um, situation. Um, I'm hearing from friends. Um, some of them are, you know, really frightened and 
Um, and some of my siblings, uh, who my sister actually has a master's in public health also. So, you know, I'm hearing all parts of this and I tend to, um, want to, want to remember, uh, the kinds of things like my friend Mitch Baker has said, and that is, I'd rather we did more than we, I'd rather we did everything that we could and find out we did more than we had to than to find out we didn't do enough. And so, you know, taking this stuff seriously is, is, you know, it's really important at the same time. Um, man, I've been doing, taking some walks on the farm and I'm spending some time out there and my wife and I have been hiking together and, um, you know, it really does help you count the most important things in life. I think a little more, um, carefully and, um, so I would say, you know, there's a lesson there that, you know, what's important in life and, and, um, and, and those are the things that I'm counting on these days is, you know, who's important and what's important to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, a great point. And another thing that you just made me think of too, is just how, how much we take for granted here in this country, all the opportunities we have and the things we can do and the freedoms of of, of all sorts that we have as privileges here. And, and now all of a sudden that's changing because of this in a lot of ways. And you very quickly realize, Oh, wow, <laughs> look what life's like when you don't have these abilities or these opportunities or look how quickly things can change. I mean, it is, I it's eye opening, I think for a lot of folks and just makes you that much more thankful for the things that we do have. Like you said, time with family, uh, but but the crazy thing is, I mean, if we it, places like France where they're banning family get-togethers and they're banning social gatherings of any kind, it's a little bit concerning where this can go when you don't even when you can't even connect with your support family groups or friend groups to to deal with some of this stuff. Um, I don't know. I mean, like you said, you don't want to panic, you don't want to worry too much, you just want to follow the guidelines and do what's best for the greater good. Uh, but it certainly is something that we have to take serious, like you said, and and then as, as you are doing, I think the thing I'm trying to do is, is stay as positive as you can and, and get outside. Like that's one of those places where you, you can still get out there and enjoy mother nature, do some good work, um, get your mind off things. Probably the worst thing right now. And I am bad right now. I'm, I'm guilty of looking at my phone a lot the last week. There's this constant stream of news. It's probably the worst thing to do. I've been trying to take my phone and like put it in another room and leave it. And say, all right, from from five o'clock till nine o'clock, I'm not going to look at the phone at all. It's because you can get addicted to well, what's happening now. What's happening yeah. now? Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's something you ever have struggled um, with. My wife, my wife would love to, if she was listening in on this, uh, which she will when it airs, I suppose. <laughs> um, she would say, yeah, well, you put that darn phone down. And uh, I, I am I'm I'm a slave to the darn thing. And um uh, and I need to change that because it 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 it'll bring you down. Um, but then it goes back to that balance. Well, how do you be serious about this if you don't know what's going on? Well, the truth is, you don't need to know what's going on every minute or even every hour. Um, it, especially, I mean, I you know I've been to your home and you know I know where you're at out there. It's not like you've got you know like me. You don't have a ton of people going by your house and you're not out interacting as a normal part of your day. Mm-hmm. Um, so you really don't have to have, you know, up to, up to the minute information, but there really is a, uh, 
it draws you to it. And, and, uh, I mean, I, I'm just too much with the phone anyway, but, uh, and I do try to set it aside, especially when I'm out at the farm. I mean, I'll take some photos and, and stuff like that just to share what's going on out there. But, um, yeah, I, I, getting outside is a big one, man, because I mean, is there a safer place? Um, if, at least if you're outside and you're not in the middle of a, a crowd, yeah. um, it's, it's fantastic being out and about. I mean, I had a great time yesterday morning. Um, Went out, checked on the cattle, and just you know, I was just it's, the farm is only a couple of miles here from from where we live, and and uh, I noticed some turkeys over across the road, so I got out and walked over across the road, and I sat in the field for a while and and watched three toms strut or two toms strut, and then a third one tried to join them, and man, there was a butt kicking contest went on <laughs> out that field, and I just felt it was one of those moments of wow, spring is here, things are happening, it's their time. Um, and then, uh, you know, I sat there for, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour or something and watched the whole thing go on. And then all of a sudden I kind of snapped back to reality, like, oh, you've got stuff to do. And, you know, I went in, I grabbed my phone and eh, there I am like back into it again. Uh-huh. So, um, perspective is awfully important. And, um, uh, but I go back to, to, you know, at the same time, there's, there's been nothing like this in, in our lifetime and, and hopefully there won't be again um, in terms of its effect on us as humans. Obviously there's some parallels that I could draw to chronic wasting disease and, and uh, yeah, that's a, that's a different area, but man, I, 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 I don't know. One of the things that I've liked about you since I, I uh, met you and, and like when we were up in Alaska together is that I thought you and I sort of connected on like the wow factor and, and, and just the appreciation of where we were and what was going on. And then as I've um, been reading your book, um, I just felt that that much more that, well, this is a guy who, who gets it. And, you know, uh, at your tender age, um, I think <laughs> you're, uh, I, I, that's very admirable that you've, you've already made all those connections. A lot of that stuff took me a while, man. Uh, definitely been blessed to, get to spend time in these places that can have that kind of impact on you. That's for sure. Uh, you mentioned something that I want to pry into a little bit more though. Um, not my tender age. We all know I've got the baby face and the young, (laughs) (laughs) that whole thing going, but, uh, but you said that there's some strange parallels to CWD and, and I've thought the same thing, uh, just with a little bit of the social side of what we're seeing with the coronavirus as, as the news about it continued to spread and more and people, more and more people were talking about it and we were starting to get guidelines about what you should do and what the government was um, recommending or, or mandating because of this. And you're seeing new regulations coming out, et cetera, et cetera. And then you started seeing the conspiracy theories and you started seeing people saying, Oh, this is government overreach, or this is just one political party trying to destroy the other political party, or this is just the, crooked media trying to cause a hysteria. Um, it, it was like, if you just swapped out Corona for CWD, you could have never known we were talking about a different thing here. I mean, very similar ways that some people are reacting to this. Um, have you, it sounds like you've noticed the same thing. Uh, yeah, really very much so, man. I, uh, one of the, the, one of the first things that struck me was looking at the, 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 uh, graphs that showed the growth in different um different countries and uh 
And the countries that did a better job, I want to say Singapore and then um, or city and then uh, Hong Kong countries and cities anyway, that they how they flattened out that curve by taking some decisive action. And in like Italy, um, I don't have it right in front of me, but Italy is one that really sticks in my head, uh, my mind and, and China, how these curves, you know, just skyrocketed. Um, just almost a you know a, a vertical growth, and some of it was and, and mostly it's because of a lack of action and and, and a lack of preparedness, um, and yeah and I agree there's a certain level of uh, denial or or you know let's not call it denial at this point let's call it skepticism, and I think it's fine to be skeptical of things that you're being told by um, certainly by politicians. <laughs> um, but I'm not so sure that it's it's real healthy or smart to be skeptical of of things that scientists who who are who have good reputations, um, you know, like the Center for Disease Control or uh, the World Health Organization. And in both cases, um, WHO and CDC both have, have made comments about both about both CWD and um, and coronavirus. Or COVID nineteen, and, um, uh, and and they're very similar, right? So that that's one of the things. And yes, um, I understand that there are some economic issues with with this current crisis that we have, and I understand that there are some economic concerns with CWD, but I don't know that that should be driving our short or long term look at. Um, and reaction to either one of them. But it seems like it has. I keep wondering, quite honestly, when somebody's going to go in, and it might be somebody from Michigan, um, let everybody figure this out on their own, (laughs) are going to go in front of uh, Congress and say, you know, human beings want to naturally gather. So it really doesn't make any sense to try to prevent them. Uh, um, Because we've heard that parallel you're drawing. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's, come on, you know, we can we can do things about unnatural gathering both in deer and in human beings. We're doing it with human beings right now, and obviously, deer don't think the same way that humans do. But we can take actions, and um, it's just a real interesting. Uh, the parallels are interesting, and you know, and kind of frightening. The other thing I would say about that is, um, you know, I'm not. Uh, the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm not the dullest one either. You know, um, one of the it's a good uh, place to be <laughs> solidly in the middle, right? yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe slightly above average is what I'd really you know. I mean, if I've got an ego, it's it's that it's going to be that I'm going to be at least slightly above average. Yeah, but you're, um, you're cutting more than butter. Yeah, <laughs> a long time ago. Um, one of the smartest people I ever met, he was a professor of mine in college, and he was just this really brilliant guy who could break stuff down in a way that um, that anybody could understand it. And, and that was a part of his brilliance, right? And I was a returning student. I was like 23 when I went back to finish my degree. And uh, uh, I was a very, very serious student at that point, not nearly as, or much more serious than I was the first two years of school. But anyway, um, I was really frustrated with myself for sort of having missed out on a bunch of things and a lack of knowledge about this or that. And I was just like voraciously reading things and really trying to become a wealth of knowledge. And uh, Jeff Perrell, Dr. Jeff Perrell was his name. And he said, uh, 
Doug, don't be so hard on yourself. You don't have to know everything. You don't have to be an expert at all these different things. What you do want to think about is how you interact with people who are experts in a particular field. Learn how to find that information. Learn how to seek those people out and pay attention to what it is that they say um, and be skeptical about it and ask questions. So, you know, that idea that you don't have to be the, 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 uh, to know everything, just knowing how to find things out is, is, is extremely important. And it's a lesson that, man, yeah, I learned it at age 23 and, and I, I think I've done pretty well with that. So when I get into a situation like this or something like this happens, be it chronic wasting disease, COVID-19, um, I don't know, there's some other things in life too. Um, I, it's like, okay, who's an expert? Who are experts in this these fields? And what, you know, who should I be listening to here? Should I be listening to the guy at the bar? Or should I be listening to the research scientists? Should I be listening to, um, uh, should I be listening to someone who has an economic concern in it? Or someone who has a long-term uh, concern about the resource or about humanity? Um someone who's worried about being, you know, about an election or someone who's m most, you know, concerned. So you have to learn how to sort of sort through those kinds of things. And I guess if I have one um, skill that I've developed over time, it's the ability to be able to, to, um, to, you know, look at, you know, what the, what the, um, what the, the research shows and what the, the smart people are saying and then decide who the smart people are and, and put my stuff aside. Yeah, it's, it's so, so, it's an increasingly important skill to have what you just described there in today's world, just because I feel like the, the word or the idea of truth has become, I'd say sadly so, it's become subjective. People yeah. are, are, are claiming their own truths and they're creating alternate truths or alternate facts or Fake news is all this stuff. Nobody knows what to trust or who to trust anymore. Nobody knows what's real um, or it's hard to discern. Um, everyone is pointing fingers at this thing or that thing is biased or uh, whatever it might be. So it's it's really something I think that people need to take seriously these days, whether it's with this or CWD or or whatever. You need to do exactly what you described. You need to go to the experts. You need to be able to discern who has this real expertise, making sure you understand the incentives of the various people you see talking about these things and understanding, okay, is this someone who's biased or incentivized to, to, to kind of skew this thing one way or another? Or is this coming from, like you said, a resource or a truth perspective or an expert perspective? Um, yeah, I mean, that's why, like you just said, I'm not getting my information about COVID-19 from Facebook or Twitter or from politicians' Twitter accounts or anything like that. I'm going to see what the CDC says and see what the WHO says. Um, when you when you have the top doctors and scientists in the world standing up there telling you prime time, hey, this is something you got to take seriously now, uh, you know, I'm going to listen. So, yeah. 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 Agenda is one of those, you know, what is this person's, you know, what what is their agenda or what is their possible uh, agenda? And the other thing, same dude that I was telling you about, um, Dr. Peril, um, uh, said to me, uh, 
we were talking about some part of history and, and you know, in class or whatever. Because I, by the way, I, have, I, I taught high school history for a number of years. And one of the things that I hope that my students, former students would remember is that one of the things I talked about at the beginning of every semester was this is a, a, a perspective. Everyone has a perspective. Even if we're talking about, there are very few things in life, even if we're talking about a fact, two plus two equals four. Okay. But we can, you know, mess with that from perspective also. But people teach history from a perspective. Everybody has a perspective. So what I was hoping that they were <laughs> learning from that that conversation was to be skeptical of what I say too, um, or at least be able to think for themselves about it um, by taking in all this information. You know, what is so? What is that person's agenda? What is their perspective? You know, our our mutual friend uh, Steve Ranella. And I were talking about deer one time and, and like too many deer. And I was like, you know, well, we have too many deer. And he goes, well, from whose perspective? Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, yeah. Well, from my perspective, based on, you know, animal health, but also that I was um, and continue to try to regenerate oaks and I'm trying to, um, you know, have a balanced ecosystem. I mean, our property isn't just about deer. It's about all of these other things. So, you know, I don't want to be overrun with them and all those sort of things. He goes, yeah, man, but what about someone who buys a property or who's, that's what all they're interested in? Um, You know, that's their perspective. And my response to that, which wasn't very well thought out at the time, but, you know, over time, it's it's one of those conversations that I I revisit in my, in my mind. And, um, it's like, well, okay, yeah, I get that people have that perspective, but if we're doing our job as, you know, conservationists or thinking people, whatever the subject might be, you know, we're going to have a, hopefully be able to have a conversation with them to help them sort of see a bigger picture. It's still their picture, right? It's still their perspective, but maybe we can help widen their perspective a little bit. I mean, I don't want people to necessarily think like me. I've always been fairly confident about, even when I was a teacher, that if I if I encourage people to think and look at evidence and facts, that they're going to come around to um, at least a thought process that's going to be, you know, it's going to at least line up with these well-reasoned and insightful ideas, that I <laughs> but but you know I, that that idea that um, and and then and then having the ability to, to change your mind. Another mutual friend of ours, Pat Durkin, um, and I were just talking the other day, and he said that um, I hope that more people will change their mind about management and chronic wasting disease. And um, I was like, well, I, I don't see it as that hard. He goes, but it is hard. It is very hard. And you've, I, I don't, I, he says, I'm not quite sure how you switched your mind, how you changed your mind so quickly. And I just, uh, because I went from, you know, sombrero and buck management, let them go, let them grow. And we were doing all those sort of things. And then the science was staring me in the face and CWD was knocking on our door. And you know, I wrote an article about it. It was in uh, on the mediator.com um, about, if I'm calling myself a conservationist and where I am in this geographic spread of this disease and um, philosophically, I need to make this change. And I kind of made that change overnight. Um, You know, (laughs) sort of made it overnight over the course of a couple of years, but I could see that that was, you know, like let nub bucks go and, and, you know, having these restrictions on people and what they could shoot and what they couldn't and all that on our farm. I was just like, 
this doesn't make sense from a science standpoint. And quite honestly, with the number of people I have hunting on the farm, I just, um, I just got tired of managing people too. So anyway, all those things, you know, enter into those kinds of thought processes. Wow. There was a strain of, uh, stream of consciousness. <laughs> I think you, you made a lot of good points though. And I especially like the, the, one of these ideas that you brought up is something I've always thought about. I think a really good quality for someone to have an important quality that I try to foster in myself is the ability to admit that I don't know it all and that I might be wrong and that I try to remain open to those possibilities as much as possible and seek out and be curious and, 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 and looking for ways to plug those gaps in my knowledge or to convince me that I might be wrong of something. I want to read something or hear from someone who has a different perspective because um, I'd like to try to shore up those shortcomings as much as possible. That's, that's something I'm trying to always get better at. And I feel like you spoke to a lot of that there when it comes to understanding everyone's got a different perspective, but also that can mean that your perspective, you know, sometimes we are looking through a tiny straw instead of through the great big wide uh, telescope that we maybe should be or the microscope that we should be. So got to remember that we've got these different lenses that we're peering at the world at. Um, I want to shift. I want to sh- I want to make a shift to something you were just talking about. But before that, I've got one last question on the current event topic with uh, with the novel coronavirus going on. Do you see any implications of this whole thing on hunting or conservation in the short or long term? Um, I, there's probably not direct, compl- uh, you know, implications, but I, I'm imagining some possible things that could happen. I'm curious if you've thought about that at all. Well, I could tell you one impact uh, on Monday. Today uh, is it Tuesday, right? Um, that's the other thing that happens. You lose track of days when stuff like this is going on. Um, yesterday, uh, some folks from Vortex were supposed to come out. Vortex Optics were supposed to come out. And uh, for the express purpose of um, uh, we're going to do a, a learn to hunt, turkey hunt um, project on, our, on the farm. Um, there's five people at um, Vortex who were going to come out and uh, take out uh, new hunters. And, and a couple of them were going to come out and, you know, they, and they were going to come out and we were just going to start like getting it together. You know, I was going to help them kind of understand how to turkey hunt the farm. And since they're taking new hunters, they would just take them to a spot, right. And not run and gun, which is kind of my favorite way of turkey hunting after the first couple hours in the morning. Anyway, um, Sawyer uh, down there got a hold of me and, and said, Hey man, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're not gonna be able to come up. And I was like, Oh, well, I, you know, I get it. And, and we don't even know, um, how this is all going to work out because all of a sudden when they're gathering, there's 10 of them, right? And then me and, you you know, it's sort of now you've got a group of people together who are coming from a bunch of different places. So that's going to, you know, in the short term, we're, we're, we just decided, okay, let's give it a couple of days and think about how we might best proceed. Um, also coming up, um, our, our county deer advisory council meetings, which um, are scheduled to happen between now and, and the middle of April, have been um, postponed. And uh, 
I don't know if you know what our CDACs are, but um, sort of unique. And it is actually something that really positive came out of some of the political stuff that was a part of our whole CWD thing. And that is that we have these advisory councils in each county. And I happen to be on the Richland County where our, our farm is located, advisory council. And uh, it's a stakeholder meeting. And we work with the biologist for the area and, um, you know, who provides us with information. We take input from the hunting community and 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 the community at large about goals and objectives for uh, deer hunting. And that's how we set quotas and some other limited tools and use some other limited tools that we have for, for hunting. Well, those have been called off. Um, and thankfully, a lot of that information is online and people actually put a lot of their input in online. So if you're in Wisconsin and you're wondering what's happening with the CDAC meetings, you can go to Wisconsin DNR, um, search CDAC, and you can uh, uh, input into each county uh, where you hunt, at least you should just where you hunt, um, you know, what your thoughts are on last season and that sort of thing. Then the other one is we also have a fairly unique um, uh, process here in Wisconsin called the Wisconsin Conservation Congress, which if I'm not mistaken was started by Leopold. Um, and that is a yearly meeting that Anyone can attend. It all happens on the same day, and it's in uh, April. Um, and, and I have not heard whether those are, are canceled yet, but I'm, I'm sure there's they're being postponed because they can be really big gatherings. And there's a number of questions about conservation in the state. And they're generally advisory questions, and it's everything from, you know, uh, fish limits in particular lakes to – um, length of season uh, for various things, and and then just sort of some general statements as well, and and um, uh, things. Uh, there, there's a, I mean, there's I usually 65 or 70 questions, um, and but that's a live meeting that everyone goes to, and as far as I know, those have been postponed as well. And if they haven't been, I'm you know I'm sure they haven't seen. I'm not on an email list for that necessarily, so I haven't seen. But those are short-term implications. That stuff is you know those are three examples of how this is affecting us. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. 
They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's just going to be, this is just one of those events that's going to impact everything. I think everything is impacted. But on this front, I was as I was thinking about this this morning, I got to believe there's a lot of little archery shops or little fly fishing shops or outdoor stores that are going to be suffering significantly as more and more places are getting shut down. People aren't traveling. People aren't going on hunting and fishing trips. Maybe uh, people maybe are worried about taking in their bow and having someone working on their stuff. I, I got to believe those things could impact folks. I know that a lot of conservation groups are canceling their banquets and their various get-togethers and meetings that are really important for funding. So like places like Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation or Ducks Unlimited or Quality Deer Management Association, I bet they're going to take a big financial hit because of those things having to be canceled. Um, I'm worried about some good legislation out there that's good for conservation and public lands, like this Great American Outdoors Act that just got introduced a little over a week ago. And there was all this excitement and energy around it and all this bipartisan support. And uh, now all of a sudden, like, there's going to be zero attention paid to that for who knows how long. And will we be able to have the funding that was promised? Like, there's this idea of dedicating something like $900 million a year to the Land and Water Conservation Fund. That's what's proposed. It'd be amazing. Um, But after all these massive stimulus packages that, that are being put out to deal with COVID-19, which seems like we have to do, are we going to have the stomach and the funds to to sign off on these conservation measures? Um, I sure hope so, but I'm, I'm a little more nervous now about what, what we're going to be able to do on that front when all this clears up. Um, oh yeah. I mean, we, so there's that, that one, the first thing that happens is the focus changes, right? Um, so the focus goes from sort of the day-to-day workings of government and the momentum that, you know, folks like BHA and, 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 and everyone else has been working on that, on that, uh, bill, um, you know, pushing that through and, you know, people are paying attention to it. Well, man, it just gets, (laughs) the blinders go on. And so one, something like that loses momentum, which is really hard thing sometimes to pick back up again. But then the secondary one, which you, um, you rightly point out was all of a sudden if we're spending billions, which is I mean billions and billions on yeah. on this uh, hundreds on, of billions. Result of this, well, really nine hundred million. Uh, you know the money's got to come from somewhere. Um, uh, you know the deficit spending stuff can only go on for so long. At least that's the way it seems. So you know is 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 that funding uh, for conservation going to be seen as um, not as important? Well, um, yeah, that's a huge concern, Mark. I didn't, thanks, man. You just kind of brought me down a little bit. I didn't, <laughs> hadn't even thought about that. Sorry. But that's just it, right? That's There's an example. Stuff just keeps coming up. It's like, oh, I was – oh, no, I'm not. I was supposed to speak in Door County um, the third week of April at an Earth Day event. 
and uh, Door County's a thumb of Wisconsin. It goes up into the lake. And uh, um, I haven't heard back from them, but um, I'm guessing that, and it was going to be a great event because um, there were a couple of politicians were going to be there. I was going to be on a panel with them, and then I was going to do a, a talk about, um, similar to the one that I did at Pheasant Fest, on um, on uh, my perspective and experience with chronic wasting disease. And um, that, I would assume, is at least on hold. I've not heard from them. I'm sure they're trying to figure that out. Um, as you and I uh, both already know, and, and most of the listeners here, too, the couple of the Meat Eater Live events have already uh, been postponed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm supposed to be a part of a couple of them in June, and they haven't said anything about that yet, but, um, you know, we'll we'll see. So, it's just like every day there's another thing that it's like, oh, yeah, that's going to be affected by this, too. So. Yeah, it's uh, it's unprecedented. That's that is just I feel like we just constantly are shocked by, oh, now this now this um, I don't even know. You know, we've already had to cancel some of our shoot dates for the back 40. And who knows when it gets to May. Um, I don't know if we'll be able to do our shoot with you, Doug. I don't know if we're yeah. going to be able to have camera crews flying and stuff at that point. Um, so everything's kind of up in the air right now. It's it's kind of crazy times. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think we should I think we should pivot so that we don't go too doom and gloom. <laughs> yeah. uh, for well, the sake of our listeners, we need a little escape, right? But um, it's important. I, but yeah, I mean, and, and I'm with you. But it's you know, it's I'm I'm glad. Um, that you, uh, one called and asked me if I, I, I do this and, and one that we spent some time talking about it and, um, because it is important. It is a backdrop to everything and I'm ready to, uh, you know, talk about other things too. So yeah. do it. And I, th- I do think the last thing I will add to what we just talked about there, I do think that when this all clears up, which, which hopefully it will clear up sooner than later and eventually we'll be able to get back to normal and, and hopefully, we will have been able to minimize the damage of this as much as possible. Hopefully when we get to that point, um, I think it's going to be on us in this community to pick up that momentum again, because like you said, it's going to be hard. It's going to be easy to lose that momentum for things like the great American outdoors act or for Mm. the funding for your local conservation organization or whatever it is. I think we're going to have to pick it up double time when we get back on our feet to, to get the ball rolling again, to make sure those things don't get lost in the, rubble of of everything else so i i just kind of encourage people to keep that in the back of your mind um that we're going to have some real work to do on that front once we get through this crisis of sorts so yeah and i would like to hope that um something like this will give us a you know we were talking about the parallels with with cwd that will help us maybe have a little better perspective um on on you know, controlling disease and and the things that we should be looking out for, because man, we've been lucky for a long time. Right. And we really have, and you know, the good old days have been happening and, and, uh, this is a, it's just an extremely rude awakening, but, uh, hopefully it'll help us, you know, maintain some, some, uh, some real perspective on all of it as well. Yeah. Learn some lessons. Ah, uh, okay. So, now that we've got that out of the way, Doug, I want to talk about conservation and habitat management and improvement and and the Duran Farm and the Back 40 Farm and all sorts of stuff like that. And I think to do that, at least the way I was thinking through this all, I, I, we got to start at the beginning. And I don't really know this story. Um, I probably know little bits and pieces of it, but I kind of want to, I need to understand how this began for you. 
Um, I know that you have this family farm that you've had this long life experience with, but I'm willing to bet you haven't always approached it the way you do now. You talked earlier about you try to approach things with a sense of balance. Um, and I've heard you talk a lot about the influence that Aldo Leopold has had on you. Um, where did this all begin? How did you get to where you are with your philosophy of, of wildlife and ecosystem management? Well, how long you got? Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to, I'll, I'll try to keep it short. You know, um, starting with the farm, um, and ending with the farm, I guess, you know, it's been in my family for 117 years. I was just looking at some aerial, um, photographs and, uh, aerial photographs from the thirties, but then also a plat book from uh, 1903. And there it is, Joseph Duran on the, uh, on the biggest wooded part of our property. And, um, and when you're a little kid, you don't, you don't like get this stuff that much. And, you know, I grew up, uh, in here in town in Casanova, I didn't grow We didn't grow up in the house out at the, at the farm. It was a, it was a property that my great grandfather bought because of the, the, the timber on it. So it was this place that we went out to going out to the farm. Um, and, uh, from the time I was a little kid, we were doing that. I mean, from the time I could, uh, hold on to the steering wheel of one of the old farm all tractors. Um, you know, you were doing something, you know, picking rock, you know, I remember by the time I was, a, you know, 10 or 12 years old, if, you know, we ran out of stuff to do, dad would always say, well, you can always go out and cut prickly ash, which is, you know, <laughs> something that you don't necessarily want in the pastures. And then you'd find something else to do because that was like the worst job. <laughs> but, um, at least at that time, but, um, my grandfather, um, obviously, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but my great grandfather was gone by the time I was uh, born. Uh, my grandfather was uh, around all the way until I, the year that I graduated from high school, and he was a lumberman and had a um, a sawmill, and um, that um, timber from that farm went to, and um, he was he was done with that by the time um, I had a memory, but. Uh, but he was always interested in what was going on in the farm. And my parents bought the farm from my grandparents and my grandfather bought it from my great grandparents. So, um, so that was just a part of it. Right. And so you're always kind of around that and what the, uh, but the, 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 the timber part of it was, I, I guess was where sort of that conservation idea began to be, became ingrained. Um, and, uh, you know, all through high school, that's where I worked. And, and uh, you know, hunting started with, with my dad taking a squirrel hunting. And, and uh, it was like a big deal that around sep- September 15th that we got to go squirrel hunting on, a, on the first, you know, on the Saturday closest to September 15th. And, and so, you know, some of my favorite memories of my father are those times spent in the woods with him. Um, I still have this one memory burned in my in my head of sitting on a side hill with him. We were waiting for some squirrels to come out, and I wasn't old enough to be carrying a gun, so, you know, I wasn't 12 anyway. And this buck walked around this side hill in the sunshine, and, and he just came around right on well, – you and I would know there's a buck trail now, you know, it was it – was, um, wasn't on the main trail, but he was still following that contour, and it just burned into my memory, and what a wonderful thing that was. Um, and sitting there with my dad and, and in our woods and this woods, it's been a part of the family. And of course, some of this has grown in my mind over time, but obviously that had a big impact on me at, uh, at that time. 
there was active logging on our farm during my, uh, you know, during my formative years to the time I was, uh, you know, 18 or, or 20. Um, there were two or three timber harvests. So how that was done was kind of important and to, you know, to, to be around and seeing, I remember going out and cutting logs and, 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 uh, or counting logs with dad walking across them. And I mean, he knew how to, he knew how to keep us busy, man. You know, it was just like, he was counting them, <laughs> but he was like, okay, the ones with this on count, how many there were. And then, you know, my brother and I'd be counting them and then we'd come back. And of course our numbers weren't the same as his, but but nonetheless, we were out there and around it, and I saw him using the the the, the stick, um, the um, the measuring stick, which you figure out how many board feet there are in a log, and um, uh, you know, and those sort of things. And then um, when I was uh, I went to school a couple of years out of out of high school, went to college, and then I went and worked for a reforestation company. And uh, it was more of a life adventure as much as anything. Actually, some of it was because of my wife, Tricia, who uh, uh, had been dating. Uh, we didn't stay together that, at that point, but we dated for a while. And, and she'd worked, she'd introduced me to these hippie tree planters, right? And she was a hippie tree planter, too. And back in the day, this was like a thing you did sometimes. And a group of people did in the winter. And you went off and did these reforestation trips and um, you get paid pretty well to slam trees in the ground. And I planted hundreds of thousands of trees um, as a part of an adventure, you know, right? I didn't go because, oh, this is going to be, a, I'm going to be changing the world through conservation and planting trees. I went because, hey, there's a bunch of hippies going tree planting. I'm going to go with them. <laughs> and um, you know what I mean? And so that kind of thing sort of becomes a, a, a formative thing. When I came back, I planted trees out on the farm, Mark, that are now giants, big white pine and red pine stuff that we've been cutting. Um, I planted trees on this 30 acres that what my wife and I now own, Trish and I know, now own. Um, I planted those trees, my God, it's almost 40 years or 35 years ago. And so um, closer to 40, I guess. But um, and, and so that kind of thing, you know, it has a pretty big impact on you that you you did that and then you see it. And I And I'll say this to you because of, you know, with your, your, with Everett and, and Colton, um, plant trees with your kids, man. Yeah. Plant trees with your kids. They're memories that grow. They really are. Um, and, uh, I did that. And those memories, my daughter's planted trees with me out at the farm. We cut, um, we cut a Christmas tree out of some of the white pines that we, we planted just a few years ago this year with where a Christmas tree came from. Anyway, um, uh, I remember my father kind of explaining to me what, what a good tree was and, you know, and what a not good tree was in terms of what had a lot of wood in it. And, you know, look how tall and straight they are. And this is red oak and this is really great stuff. And this is white oak and this is hard maple. And, and you know, those big old wolf trees, you'd call them, which are great for wildlife, but they're not, they're not, they're in a, hell, they're in a stick of wood in them is what he'd say. <laughs> um, and grandpa would say the same thing. So that kind of perspective happened. Well, so then I, I come back from uh, from the tree planting gig and I milk cows on the farm a little bit more. And there's, you know, it's a small dairy farm. Uh, we had a small dairy herd. And uh, and then I, I went off and um, finished college. Um, I had a degree in earth science at the time. I went and got a history degree and teaching degree. And I moved out to uh, New England where my, uh, well, you know, you make a long move from the Midwest to New England. There's probably a woman involved. <laughs> And um, I got a job with a landscape company out there in the in the, the first summer I went out there. And um, 
man, it just sparked this interest in horticulture. And we, I worked on the South Shore of Boston, um, in the Weymouth, uh, Braintree, all the way down to Cape Cod area. And it was just really interesting to see a different part of the world like that in a different part of the country. And then I learned a lot and then started to get interested in horticulture. And of course, it just sort of followed along. I then taught high school in Gorham, New Hampshire for uh, the rest of the 1980s for um, five years was there, you know, a summer on either end of it, too. And um, a couple of summers up there, I worked on the uh, for the Randolph Mountain Club, which was the or which is the oldest mountain club in North America. They were always quick to point out it may not be the biggest, but it was uh, the oldest uh, and uh, did trail work. Um, and so in the Appalachian and the, the, the presidential range of the White Mountains. And it intersected with the Appalachian uh, Trail and the Appalachian Mountain Club and all those folks. And um, seeing, um, you know, the White Mountain National Forest, that was a part of that. And, you know, it's funny because we were having a conversation, you and I were having a conversation when we were in Alaska about our public lands experience. And I, mm-hmm. and I remember saying something like, well, you know, and maybe Steve was asking us about it. And I said, yeah, I've really not had that many. I mean, most of what I've done is on private land. And, and it dawned to me later, like, uh, duh, you spent all those years right there in the middle of the White Mountain National Forest and you did that trail work and, um, and learned a bunch of stuff. And, and, um, so, uh, but you know, you get to be old and your mind starts to slip and you maybe forget some of that stuff. But, uh, that had a profound uh, impact on me as well. And one of the things was, is I was interested in the, the, that a lot of my students were living in the middle of this and they didn't like know about it. Like, what do you mean you've not been up to, you know, Dome Rock or you've not been over into to Evans Notch or you've not been, I mean, you know, it's, it, I mean, they kind of been to the ski hills and, you know, didn't have the rest of that perspective. So then as a history teacher is one of the things that I tried to, and, and a, social, a social studies teacher, I taught a class about New Hampshire also, um, tried to help them understand that perspective a little bit. And it was, or what they had around them. And uh, it was pretty cool to uh, to hear from, uh, you know, some of the outdoorsy types there and, and uh, what they were interested in and, um, so that, um, had a profound, uh, impact on me. Um, it's interesting cause I was just, you know, the cool thing about the, the interweb here and, and, uh, uh, Instagram, uh, which is like where I spend most of my social media time is on Instagram. Um, conversing with people that I've met. Well, one, the students that I've kept in touch with, but then people I've met who know people that I like, knew out there and then places. Gilead, Maine, Evans Notch, the Androscoggin River, and, you know, looking at like Google Earth and realizing, man, this shack that I, this place I used to live just across the New Hampshire border in Maine is now gone and there's a sand pit there. And it's like, wait a minute, what happened there? And, and uh, conversing with this guy about it on on, on social media and, um, and him reassuring that me that most of that area is as much as it was. Um but that being in northern New Hampshire, you know, and doing things like the guaranteed moose cruise where you could go um, <laughs> like a 20 mile drive north and you damn sure see a new moose, you know, nice. um, 
those sort of things had a big, you know, had that sort of uh, impact on me. Um, moved back, um, eventually ended up in, in Dora County where I had a landscape business, um, t- took horticulture classes, got really involved with with conservation at that point, had a landscape business that was mostly focused on um, uh, naturalization and restoration and did some, was really lucky to do some really cool work and meet some really interesting people up there and and people who really care about that area. And Door County, Wisconsin is a freaking gem and don't go there anybody because there's plenty of folks there now. But um, and <laughs> there's cool. a lot of natural a lot of natural areas there and, and just these these gems of 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 state parks and, and that sort of thing. And you, you you know, so I worked with that environment. Um eventually ended up uh, back in Madison about twenty in Madison, Wisconsin, twenty five years ago. And um uh, life changed, and I ended up with uh, working with uh, a landscape, uh, is staying in the landscape and the horticulture business, uh, worked for a major regional landscape firm as a branch manager, and then eventually got picked off by a engineering firm to go to work for them as a project manager and, and build and manage athletic fields. Um, and, uh, you know, all the time, especially the last 25 years, staying connected to the to the to the farm. Oh, I was going to say when I was in Door County, um, had a little farm up there and um, met one of the guys from the land conservation department who was really interested in pheasant hunting. And, and since I had pheasants on my property, he was particularly interested in me. Um, and we, he was one of the people who really introduced me to uh, the land conservation department in the county and our natural resource conservation service, pheasants forever. Um, you know, working with FSA, the Farm Services uh, Association, and I started at that point getting involved with conservation programs for private landowners on my own land. Uh, in Door County, we really didn't have the, I didn't have the opportunity to do that with many other clients or and many of our clients, but with one I did. Um, but it really uh, made me realize, wow, here's a whole you know, opportunity. And I remember thinking, man, I wish I would have known this when I was a kid. I probably would have been a wildlife ecologist or a forester or something like that. Um, I didn't have that kind of focus at the time. Um, eventually moved to Madison, as I said, uh, 25 years ago, my my youngest brother was killed in a car accident and, and he was living on the farm at the time. And so everything kind of was up in an upheaval in our family. And um, I was the one who was closest and um, ended up in Madison and sort of taking care of the farm. And because of these perspectives that I have from these different parts of the country and different experiences and work with um, various agencies, um, my dad, um, um, you know, he was, well, he, he died a couple of years ago, but, you know, he was getting older at the time. Um really needed help with things on the farm and eventually turned over the whole management of it uh, to me because the farm, uh, we quit farming it, you know, dairy farming. And my brother uh, was the last one to dairy farm it in 1988. And then, and he left the area and the farm didn't really owe us anything. Right. I mean, it had been paid for and thank goodness my parents um, had done some smart things in their lives and, and the farm paid for itself and they didn't need to sell it to, um, finance their retirement. So now all these years later, in fact, just this past year, if my, after my mother passed away, 
my generation, my four brothers and sisters and I, um, are now all 20% owners of the property. So, um, and we've, we've kept it, uh, we're keeping it in a way to honor my, my younger brother's, uh, memory. Um, in fact, our LLC is called Matt's last tree stand, um, LLC. And, um, and everything we're doing is sort of for, for, for two things. One is for, it has to be financial viable, financially viable. It can't, you know, it's got to pay for itself. It's at least got to pay its own expenses. And then um, we're trying to do the the quote unquote right thing. And, you know, that's changes and adapts and all of that for conservation management. So, um, and it, because now in my business that I've been back out on my own for about uh, 12 years now, um, uh, I provide um, site and land management consulting and contracting services, um, the farm is sort of a proving ground for a lot of things. I mean, I, I've had an awful lot of folks out, you know, through the farm and sort of shown them what we've done, what we're doing, what's going well, what's not going well. I mean, that's, hell, those lessons are as important as any of them. And those are the kinds of things that, um, that I feel so fortunate to have had the opportunity to, to, you know, to, to go next. Um, you know, and then, uh, interestingly enough, or serendipitous, serendipitously enough, 12 years ago, that was the first time I heard of a skinny little guy named Steve Ranella. And uh, a little over 10 years ago, he and I became friends. And, um, you know, that's how I got here, Mark. Here we are now. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about, uh, you know, trying to do the right thing on your guys' farm. How... How would you describe the Duran philosophy? Where you are now, where, after all those experiences just you described, and trying all these different things, and seeing all these different philosophies and ways to go about managing, whether it be public lands or private lands, how would you describe the Duran philosophy to wildlife or habitat management um, and doing the right thing? Where are you at now? Well... Um... It's a simple phrase. It's not ours. It's just our turn. And so that philosophy that actually came about walking out of the woods with a forester um, where we had been marking big giant trees um, for, for harvest. And they were happened to be big red oaks and, and a few white oaks that um, – it was their time. And I remember my dad saying to me, he says, I know it needs to be dug, done, Doug, but I, I don't want to be the one to do it. And I realized at that point that these 125-year-old trees were little tiny trees when my dad was born. And over his 92 years, he grew up with those trees. And that forest developed over that time. And anyway, I was working with the forester, putting it together. And this happened to be a DNR forester um, who was uh, – in Wisconsin, we have a, a forestry, uh, every county has a DNR forester and, and, and they come out and, you know, give you perspective, um, for free, um, at no charge, I should say on, um, you know, what sort of give you the perspective of your property and your woods. Anyway, we're walking out and we've been marking some trees for TSI timber stand improvement. And we stopped at the top of the hill and, uh, we're just, sort of chit-chatting there for a minute. And he goes, you know, I really applaud that you and your family are are willing to do this because a lot of people just want to hold that kind of timber 
in place. And, you know, eventually it starts to fall and, and, you know, there are reasons to do this, you know, to, it's, it's time to start the woods over. It's time to harvest the, you know, the economic benefit of it and all that. And I said, well, I, you know, I feel like we're standing on the shoulders of uh, my great grandfather, my grandfather, my father, and I mean, parents, but, you know, male dominated, um, the farm stuff, uh, grandparents. And, uh, and I said, I guess I just feel like it's, it's not ours. It's just our turn. And Mike Finley was the forester and he looked at me, he goes, you gotta write that down. <laughs> and so I did. And that really is the philosophy. So it's sort of that attitude of what are we going to do now? And what does it have to do with the future? Mike said to me one time when we were talking about some timber harvest, he goes, one perspective to keep in a timber harvest is not so much what you're taking, but what you're leaving and what's going to happen after you do that harvest. And it was a really important thing. So the right thing is can be, you know, the right thing can be fleeting, right? I mean, but in a, a plan, our management plan and any management plan that I work on for a, um, a landowner is one that it has to be adaptive, right? It's not like, okay, this is the way we're, this is, the, well, this is what our plan says, so we have to stick to it. Well, you know, boy, in nature, things change, you know, and a great example of that is chronic wasting disease. Um, things change. So we changed our, our, our hunting philosophy a little bit. Um, in forestry, we have this thing now called uh, the emerald ash borer. So, the emerald ash borer is killing ash trees like crazy. I know you've got Michigan too. And um, so if you're in doing a harvest, well, you probably ought to take the ash too for two reasons. One, to catch that economic value that you can before they are dead. And then two, to hopefully, you know, have form a little bit of a buffer there so that the disease doesn't continue to advance. So um, it kind of goes back to what we were talking earlier, right? That, it's important to um, draw on your experience uh, to be willing to be adaptive, but most importantly, to talk to experts in a particular field. Um, some of my best friends are foresters and um, and and um, wildlife ecologists or or habitat ecologists. You know, a lot of friends with with uh, pheasants forever and. And man, those are the people that I talk to about this stuff. It's still up to me. It's still my decision, and or us, my my family and I. But it's it's all of that information. What's the quote unquote best thing? And um, ours tends to be from a conservation perspective. We could make more money on our cropland right now, um, even though commodities are down a little bit, if I was still, if I still was just renting it to um, one of the local farmers for corn and beans, corn and beans, you know, uh, row cropping. But um, five years ago, well, six years ago, we just finished our fifth year. Um, we went back into the conservation reserve program, put it all back in. We're not making as much money, but financially it works. And then we saw, my siblings and I um, saw that, um, that that will we're achieving multiple benefits from one action, and when I talk with politicians about things like the Conservation Reserve Program, there are multiple benefits from one action, and that action is allowing more acres or paying for acreage to be in the Conservation Reserve Plan. So first, we've taken some 
highly rotable marginal farmland out of out of production. And quite honestly, our entire farm is considered highly rotable land because of the slopes and everything. Um, you've created wildlife habitat. You've created by by the seeding that you do. Um, you've uh, we're 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 sequestering carbon. We're improving water quality. Um, and you know, aesthetically, it's pretty darn cool too. Um, now, philosophically, there's other people out there. I can tell you. One farmer said to me, "Well, it looks to me like just a bunch of damn weeds." <laughs> and, uh, so, I mean, from his perspective, it is because he's a farmer, right? Um, and he wants to grow corn and beans, corn and beans, corn and beans, and maybe hay once in a while. So, um, you know, again, from whose perspective? And from ours, it's like, well, what what is the what the, we, financial viability is important. Um, conserve, we've made a commitment to conservation, um, but we don't have money that we can just throw at it. I will say that when we did our big timber harvest um, over the last several years. Um, that money all went into a fund, um, or almost all of it, uh, went into a fund that um, secures the financial security of the farm for the next hundred over 100 years. And when we were doing a this timber harvest we were doing, this oak, oak harvest that we were doing, we we're, were trying to regenerate oaks up there. That's a hundred year commitment. Um, and we, because of the experts came out and said, you have a good spot where you should be able to regenerate oak here. This, this area over here, not so much, but over here, yes, you should be able to regenerate oaks and without getting into oak regeneration too deep. Um, so when I have an expert telling me that this is a spot where you can do it, not so much over there, let's, let's take a look at that. And, and what is that going to require? So um, that's what our, that's what the right thing is. And uh, well, that was kind of the overall view of what you asked me, right? Yeah, it was. And I got to, I want to get a better sense of the why for a lot of that. Um, there's a lot of people that buy land for hunting is their top goal. Right. At least a lot of folks listening to this podcast they're if they're going to buy some kind of land purchase, if they're going to land purchase, it's probably going to be for some kind of recreational um, thing like deer hunting. And so most of folks that are managing land have that in mind as a top um, as a top reason they're doing any kind of work on the farm. Um, and so someone listening to this now when they're thinking about the changes they're going to make to their property, the improvements they're going to make to their property, the the projects and the money they're going to invest into it, usually deer or whatever species they're hunting or whatever the activity is, um, that's going to be top of mind. So when, when someone hears about properly managing a forest, regenerating oaks, um, you, you didn't mention it here, but I know something you think about is, is dealing with invasive species or trying to prioritize native species, um, balancing deer herds with the habitat, all that kind of stuff. Someone might say, well, that's just sounds like distractions from more deer or bigger deer or something like that. Uh, why do all those things matter to you, I guess? And, and then maybe why might it matter for other people? This kind of this, this, this balanced approach that you seem to be taking. Yeah, man, that's ex you just said the word balanced approach. All right. So first of all, if you were to be in Wisconsin and and um, I would I'm going to put a plug in for this. It's called the Deer Management Assistance Program that is also through the Department of Natural Resources. So a landowner can contact um, Bob Knack at the um, 
at the Department of Natural Resources or any of the biologists, and they'll help them get involved, landowners get involved with a thing called the DMAP program, Deer Management Assistant Program. And uh, <clears throat> because, of course, that's the gateway drug, right? I mean, that, you're exactly right. That's the, that's the, uh, a lot of the reasons people buy, people from away, as, as we fondly call them, um, buy property is for, for hunting or recreation, specifically um, white-tailed deer. And it's been a blessing and a curse. And man, we can go down that, that rabbit hole a long ways. But the why of it is, here's one of the smart things that Mike Finley also said to me. Good forest management is good wildlife habitat management is good deer deer habitat management. My biggest challenge on that place, on that part of the farm where we are um, harvest uh, where we harvested those big oaks and our regenerating oak is keeping uh, a balanced uh, balance with everything right that we want from a financial standpoint we want those oaks to come back from a from a long-term environmental standpoint an ecosystem standpoint we want those oak, we want oaks to come back there because it's something we're losing in the driftless area the problem is deer as you know deer love white oak acorns and they really love to, to eat white oak acorns and they really love to browse on red oak uh, browse so i've had experiences where the deer just wiped the damn uh the oaks out when we planted them in rows um uh, a small amount but with this natural regeneration there's you know there's a lot more of it um that work is i mean it's like deer shangri-la up there um, I, I know I sent you and I posted a picture of the nice buck that I shot up there uh, this year. Yeah, um, it's man, it's a tough place to hunt, but it makes you think about okay, well, how am I going to hunt this? So I'm up there deer hunting, Mark, and I'm looking at it like okay, well, we've got good regen. It looks like yeah, we've got a lot of underbrush here. Ooh, I've got some invasives over there. Um, I'm not solely focused on, um, on, on deer hunting, but I know you have these thoughts too, when you're up in a stand, especially now on the back 40 on the property that you're, you're developing. It's like, you're, I mean, you're sitting in the stand and you're, you're not just like, Oh, when's a deer going to appear? When's a deer going to appear? You're thinking about a lot of different things. And so you're looking at that property from that perspective. Um, what else can I do with this property? Cause you know, quite honestly, oh, yeah. you know, deer, deer is, you know, it's fun. And I know you're, you think it's, uh, well, I mean, you and I both have a, a obsession with deer, but <laughs> you spend a hell of a lot more time at it than I do. I mean, cause you know, that whole bow hunting thing, um, it's a thing. <laughs> it is a thing, man. And you know, as a farm kid growing up, you know, you know what I always say, we, I thought that bow hunt was for people who didn't have enough to do. And, um, it's, that is sort of the, the case. If you're a farmer, I know plenty of farmers who do a little bit of gun hunting, but they don't do any bow hunting at all. And um, because they just they, they don't have time for it. Um, and uh, I find that to be, you know, I find that to be a real interesting thing since bow hunting has become such a big part of our whitetail pursuit. Nobody bow hunted around here when I was a kid. Nobody did. Um, it was gun hunting for nine days. And of course, we didn't have that many deer. But, you know, so that's I'm, I'm, that's a whole that's a whole nother discussion. But the turkeys. You know, if you want, I mean, we're about to about to have turkey season here and, and uh, turkey hunting here. Good management is, you know, a good, good forest management, good habitat management is good for those animals as well. Um, and then as you start to, to think about all of that, you know, songbirds benefit from it. Um, if you're doing 
I mean, I've kind of gotten away from food plots, which is, you know, is a different discussion, but I've done pollinator habitat. And what I found about pollinator habitat, it's good deer cover. And, um, uh, it's also great for, you know, for, uh, for, uh, honeybees and hummingbirds and, and our other pollinators and, and it's aesthetically pleasing. Um, so if you're just taking a walk, um, which my wife likes to do. She's not much of a hunter, but she loves to take a walk. And, and so it's, you know, it's just, this is a beautiful thing, a water feature, you know, like keeping your stream, um, uh, you know, keeping your stream banks up and, you know, working through programs like that. Well, that's a lot more aesthetically pleasing and attractive to someone who may not be, um, a, a hunter, um, but who is interested in, in going for a walk and, you know, and, and uh, a recreational user. Um, to me, it just makes sense. I mean, and, and balancing all of those things is important. Um, and, you know, I, you and I might disagree a little bit about this part of white-tailed deer. This damn thing's a live anywhere. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe that big giant buck isn't going to live just anywhere, but um, there, they, along with coyotes, are some of the most adaptable creatures out there. Mm-hmm. Um I, 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 it's a, it's an odd position to be in, man, but I'm in a position where I'm trying to discourage deer more than I am trying to encourage them. Um, and I think that especially in our, down here in Southwest Wisconsin, that, um, that because we have so much deer habitat, um, and we have so many deer, um, and we have a, you know, we have a kind of the opposite problem now, um, part of this DMAP program, management assistance program, is to understand, you know, deer biology, um, uh, ecosystem balance, all of those sort of things. So um, that's the why. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. Um, I'm working with a client with, with a, well, he's not even a client anymore. He's just become a friend because I've like told him to grow his wings, you know. Um, he's a really smart guy. Hey, Chip. And uh, he's a big Mark Kenyon guy, by the way. Um, <laughs> so he's listening. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He'll be listening for sure. Um, and I, I mean, I, I had dinner with him the other night and, and afterwards sent him a whole list of contacts. He's he's someone who wants to learn and understand and develop his property, you know, with that wide view. And I kind of just sent him on his way the other night in terms of uh, – you know, from go, the transition from being a client, somebody who paid me to come out and spend some time with him on his property and talk about things in general. Um, uh, now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And as often is the case, those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in, ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co 
And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. I think that's way more interesting than for a landowner than um, I just I just want to do this for deer. I think you're finding that out. Yeah. Um, that it's way more interesting. And um it sort of harkens back to, uh, um, you know, to, to the to the idea of it's just not about what you want right now. It's it's very much about what what has come before you, and then what's going to be after you as well. Um, so that's a big part of the why. So something you didn't really mention within there specifically, but that I know is another one of these pieces of this balanced approach that I, that I think there's a, a decent bit of debate about within the hunting community, at least, is this whole like, invasive versus native species um, quandary when it comes to managing habitat. There's, uh, again, if, if we're going from just, I want more deer, bigger deer, and if we're going to now thinking, okay, I want to have a balanced approach to the ecosystem. I want to try to be a good steward for everything that's going on here on my 40 acres or 200 acres or 10 acres, whatever it is. Um, I think inevitably you'll eventually start thinking about this invasive versus native um, topic. Some people I've talked to are saying, Hey, some of these invasive quote unquote invasive species um, they'll say are actually good deer habitat or they're actually good bird habitat or they're actually doing good stuff. So why are you wasting your time taking them out? when you're just reducing the quality of habitat for a bunch of stuff. Um, wh- what do you say to that? How do you go about prioritizing this kind of stuff? Is it, is it, should it be a top priority? Should it be, well, if you have some extra time, nip away at some of this stuff? Uh, how do you, how do you think about this? How should other people think about this? Well, um, yeah, that's, that actually really is a, a great question because um, the first thing I would say is, non-native versus native versus uh, using the phrase invasive. And invasive is obviously a detriment on the landscape or sounds like a detriment on the landscape. And when I when you say invasive to me, I think of um, garlic mustard, which is a, a herbaceous plant that we have growing like crazy in, in, um, in our area um, that um, chokes off, you know, native herbaceous plants. Um, um, multiflora rose is another one, 
um, interestingly, Multiflora rose was, um, I don't remember whether you had that over there. I know you had buckthorn um, and honeysuckle. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, Multiflora, let me use Multiflora rose as an example, was actually introduced by, uh, well, I understand it was introduced by the DNR, or at least that's the, 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 the tale. It may have been, um, you know, farm agency folks, um, as the quote unquote living fence. And if you've ever tried to walk through multiflora rows, you know why mm-hmm. it was the living fence. It's just nuts. Um, and it provides, um, a, a lot of, um, a lot of, um, wildlife, uh, feed. The problem with it is, is that it doesn't know how to stay in the fence row. Um, you know, a bird will, it, it just spreads the, through the wildlife and the birds spreading it, you know, how many things get spread that way. Right. Um, so, you know, that's one. Another is autumn olive, which, um, autumn olive is, a it's a great food for birds. Um, but again, it doesn't, it, it doesn't really, um, mind its manners, you know, it, it'll spread anywhere, like in an open area. Um, and then, um, have a detrimental effect on on grass and and grasslands and and uh, some of our other woody uh, plants and outcompete some of our fringe plants. A lot of our our natives, you know, like viburnum is a good one, um, uh, service berry, choke cherry. Those things are all native fringe plants, but they don't they don't always compete. Dogwood dogwood always competes pretty well, but or generally competes pretty well, but they don't compete as well with these things like autumn olive, which, you know, is one of the first things to green up and one of the last ones to lose its leaves. And that's what those invasives tend to do. Um, But you're right. There is benefit to them. Um, I'm yet to find uh, other than the occasional salad that um, um, what garlic mustard is doing for us. But um, so invasives versus uh, non-native um, yeah, you know, plant and apple trees. I mean, you think about all the things that are quote unquote non-natives. Um, so I, I think we need to differentiate between, between those things. And then the other part of it is when you do have an invasive species, like you've got glossy buckthorn, honeysuckle, I got my notes here, which are. We've got a lot of autumn olive. Yeah. Autumn olive. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, great bird food and all that. In fact, that used to be autumn olive used to be a part of. The um, I think it was called the quail package, uh, wildlife package. It was something that was planted. I I had a managed a property where the stuff was just it was in rows along the edges of uh, other planted areas, um, and so control right management. That I mean it's the heavy hand of man. I mean one thing that Michigan and Wisconsin and most of the Midwest has in common is when we start talking about things like natural. Um, age structure of deer and, you know, trying to achieve that kind of thing. It's like, come on. I mean, we're to a degree, what is natural? Um, there's, this is an unnatural, uh, unnatural landscape. We've, 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 um, you know, everything is so heavily manipulated. The reason we have so many deer in Southwest Wisconsin is because it's a heavily manipulated landscape. You know, 95% of our, um, county is considered deer habitat. And a lot of that is agricultural land. Um, 
And, you know, so you've got this sort of perfect storm of all of these, these things. And, um, you know, it's, it's, we have habitat, we have, we have agriculture. Um, there is that browse and all of that, but it's important to find a balance in there. The, you know, you said that word right at the beginning when you're asking this question to, to find a balance of all of it. You don't want to have just multiflora rose or autumn olive or glossy buckthorn or honeysuckle, all those things. You're not going to eradicate them. Eradication, once these things are established, even like I hate to go back to chronic wasting disease right now, but, um, you know, 18 years ago when they started talking about eradication of the disease in Wisconsin, that was the thing that kind of got the hair back, uh, the hair on the back of hunters. Well, what do you mean we're going to eradicate the disease in order? How do you do that? Well, you're going to have to eradicate the deer. And that was what people got concerned about. So, um, uh, in the business that I'm generally in, we talk about something called integrated pest management. So you try to do as much as you can without it become uh, to to control something, without it becoming sort of an obsession to get rid of all of it, unless there is something that you can, you know, there are times when there are things that you can you you may be able to eliminate. The problem with most of of the Midwest is. You may eliminate it on your property, but if your neighbor didn't, you're going to get it back anyway. So then it becomes a control measure. And that's really what land management, that's a big part of land management. And I would say, you know, some people might say, well, that's unfortunate. And I'm like, not necessarily, because as you pointed out and as other people have pointed out, there's some positive benefit to this to this stuff. Um, canary reed grass, which is a, another one it seemed like you had over there in, yep. in that bottom. I mean – yeah, it's an invasive species and it's eliminating, you know, it's excluding some of our other things. But, oh, my gosh, is that great deer cover, huh? Yeah. So, and then it kind of goes back to that word again, balance. You you talked about something. This, this is going to be a little bit of a sidetrack. But I got to pick your brain on something that I personally battle with a little bit or I hear other folks talking about this and I – I get a little bit frustrated because I think this topic of balance is needed, or at least from my perspective. Um, you've got two ideals or ideas around managing land. And let, let's take a step back and talk more around the public land debate or the public land because this debate seems to be more focused on public land where there's some folks that want to protect for or manage for wilderness. You talked about trying to go back to a natural state and how um, there's this idea that let's just leave it. Let's, let's stop messing around with it. Let's just step back and let nature do what nature does. Let's preserve some part of our landscape as wilderness, quote unquote. Um, so there's that idea. And then there's the other group, another idea that says, no, we have to manage. Everything's already manipulated. We got to manage we have to go and we have to cut down the trees because, you know, we need to get more sunlight on the ground and that's better for food, for wildlife and whatnot. And then the other group will say, well, no, we need to leave some of this timber alone because we need old growth timber. And when we cut down all these things, we're ruining habitat for other animals and we're destroying certain types of habitats now that are so rare. Um, can't we just let stuff go sometimes? So there's these competing philosophies within um habitat management on our public lands and and you can look at someone who i know who's influenced you a lot like Eldo leopold and see a dichotomy even within him where he was one of the he was 
one of the very first people that ever advocated for actual wilderness protection within the within the United States public land system back in the 20s. He was writing articles saying, hey, you know what? I understand we want to do all these different things, but there's some places we should leave untrammeled. We shouldn't put roads through. We shouldn't log. We shouldn't do this stuff. You need to have some of this wild, untouched, primitive space still. He said that. But then he also, decades later, was also advocating for all sorts of heavy, I don't want to say heavy-handed, but involved human management of wildlife populations and landscapes. So he kind of embodied these two different approaches to managing an area, a landscape, a habitat. Um, I personally, when I like struggle with this or look at this, I see a place and a need for both. Um, I really am strongly impacted or I don't know what's the way to say this, but I, I see a real need for wilderness. Um, I'm drawn to it. I, I find some kind of solace in that we still have some places that are at least less manipulated and, and, and relatively more primitive than other places. I see that need. I also see the need for management in a lot of landscapes too. I, my hope is or thoughts that we should have both in, in the right places and in the right ways. But I constantly find myself what, going back and forth and debating how and why and when and, and where. Um, I'm rambling now, Doug. That's a bunch of my thoughts. What, where's your head at on this whole issue? Well, I like everything you just said. And uh, <laughs> you address some of that in the book too, man. Yeah. Uh, and uh, which is really, you know, again, I was like, how, there's just like this part of you that's like this old soul that I, I just really dig. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, philosophically, I like, I, I like that, that a lot. And um, I agree with everything you said. Leopold exactly is, is, I mean, he's sort of is, we can <laughs> look to Leopold, right? What would Eldo do? Yeah. Um, you know, at the same time that he was advocating for, um, uh, you know, wilderness and, and, and wildlife management and, you know, all of these things, he was also buying his own land and doing work on that. And he had developed a relationship with a landowner named uh, Reuben Paulson and had this thing started called the Riley Game Cooperative that I'd like to talk about more in a little bit. But it is all of those things. Um uh, let me give, give let me give you a 400 acre view of that. So when I was talking about our property, our, our my family's farm, right? We got 400 acres, 240 acres of its woods. We um, did this shelterwood harvest, which is essentially a, a, a clear cut done in stages. And the idea is that you're regenerating oak, and there's reasons for for that in oak regeneration. And that's a whole day lecture. We can go up there and hang out and and, and take a look at it. And uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting. But at the same time, um, we've got some what we're calling legacy area on our farm where we're not going to cut those trees. You know, if they fall over, they fall over. Um, and, you know, if that tree was worth X amount of dollars, yeah, well, it's worth X amount of legacy and wildlife habitat. And, you know, because a big hollow, you know, uh, a big hollow tree is wildlife habitat. And so when you, that's one of the cool things, even in balancing and forestry is you can go through a, a timber harvest that I've been involved with at least and there'll be trees that has a big W on them. And every logger knows what that means. That's a wildlife tree. And yeah, that might be something that you, 
you know, you just get out of the way to let more more young straight trees that are going to be boards and cords, and we're going to make good timber out of that. Yeah, there's a place for all of it. Um, I think that um, on public land, so to take that on a, from a small perspective on private land, and then take just go go to the private. Uh, public land, which you were talking about, um, you know, having spent time in in the uh, some of the national forests, Shawamigan National Forest, and the Boundary Waters, and um, and then of course that fabulous trip that you and I got to go on uh, yeah. before the river area of Alaska. Um, uh, if I guess this is where I'm at with that. The idea that there's wilderness out there, and maybe Steve has talked about this, and maybe if I'm stealing his ideas or somebody else's, you know, um, that's because I, that's the most sincere form of flattery, right? Sure. Um, is that even if I can't ever get there, the idea that it's there is really important to me. Um, I was I, I was talking with a guy who's selling these e-bikes the other day. And he's like, well, just think about the access that it provides. And I'm just like, yeah, I get it. I understand what you're saying. And boy, that'd be cool as hell for me to be able, because I can't hike like I used to be able to hike. Um, like I won't, be able, I, won't get, I won't hike back to the top of Mount Adams, and Jefferson, Washington, and, and the White Mountains. If I go to the top of Mount Washington out in, uh, in the White Mountains, again, if I go to the top of Mount Washington, I'll drive a damn car up there because you can do that. Yeah. You know, maybe or a train. Yeah, or the train and run across the ridges. You can do that, but there's nothing like climbing up there yourself. Yeah. And I did that when I was a younger man, and um, um, I think I could probably get up there again. I'd have to stop a little more often, but I'll um, take a road trip with you and do that someday. There you go. Um, and those are things that I got to do because people like Leopold and Roosevelt and and um, you know, whoever else you want to list as a great conservationist of our of our country, um, preserve them, and and that kind of goes back to that. It's, uh, I got to do it. Somebody else should get to, and then even if I never make it back to the Forty Mile River area again, um, just knowing that that is still there, um, you know, is is really important. So I think there's room for all of it. Um, it's okay to have old growth trees and let some of them just go and, and, and have areas preserved. Preservation is a tough word sometimes, right? But let it go and see what nature does. Well, you also monitor it. Like if in these areas on the farm where I'm, we're letting the legacy areas, we're letting it go. It doesn't mean I'm letting invasive species go nuts in there. Um, that's the kind of work that I'm, I'm, I'm doing on it. But we're leaving the, we're, you know, we're leaving them big old oaks in there and, and those big maples and, um, and just letting them have their, you know, let them go into their natural end. So there, again, it kind of goes back to that balance. Um, it's easier with bigger acreage, um, uh, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of acres of, of public land. And then some of it is, well, why hasn't it been developed? Well, I mean, I think about like that 40 mile river area. Um, how, how the hell would you get there to do it, to, to, to quote unquote develop it? And then I realized, well, wait a minute, we were landing that short flight that we, I don't know whether you took that one or not, or if you remember, we flew in on those, in those super cubs. It seemed like it took forever to get up there. But then when we were flying out, they flew us down to that little strip that was only 25 minutes away or 20 minutes away. And that was a, uh, had been a mining area there. Right. Um, I never did get to see that. I always, I, I took the direct flight in and out. Oh, you did, man. 
Yeah. Well, weren't you lucky? <laughs> um, actually, I mean, I, I, I would have done that, although it was an interesting experience getting to, to fly in the Cessna back out of there because you were much higher up. And that was a whole, yeah, man, I, man, I still dream about that. That's that. something. But, um, but I think that, 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 when I speak with, um, so this is sort of, and then there's the in-between, right? So how could you, I remember had a landowner who was looking at doing some oak work, oak regeneration work on their property. And I took them up into the, what we call the big woods on our property. And I was like, and we're going to cut the rest of these trees next year. And they're like, how can you do that? It's like, well, you with a chainsaw, you know? <laughs> and and um, they're like, no, 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 no. What I mean is how could you do this to this? These are magnificent trees. And, and um, I would just want to hold them. And so then I took them a little bit or, and, and keep them, you know. So I took them a little further down to show them where some trees had fallen over. I mean, eventually they are all going to die. A, an oak, a red oak tree can live to be, I don't know, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, 250, 300 years old. Um, but they aren't all going to live to be that old. And the economic peak for them is somewhere between 100 and 125. So we left some and we took a bunch and we're regenerating. So 100 years from now, hopefully there'll be those trees there again on a heavily manipulated landscape. You know, it's already a manipulated landscape um, by man, kind. And, um, you know, you look at a small property and it's like, well, we don't want to do any of that here. Totally understand because you've only got 10 acres of that kind of woods or 15 acres of that kind of woods. So what's the best thing that you can do for that property based on all of the, or that little chunk of woods based on all of these thoughts that might be in your head. Um, uh, one of the interesting things that at least it was interesting to me that when we did our first level of the shelter wood, which is you take out, um, you take out about 60% of the oaks that are in there. And then we took out the other species that we didn't, we didn't want to regenerate and, and we held them back through herbicide applications and some other things. Redheaded woodpeckers moved in there and it was for the five years before we did the second, it was like this haven for redheaded woodpeckers. And it was just remarkable to see these giant tall oaks that had grown tall and straight because there had been so many of them. They all went to the sunlight and these redheaded woodpeckers flying amongst them. Well, what happened to those woodpeckers after we cut those? Well, they moved on. They happen to move on to another part of our, a lot of them moved on to another part of our farm and still are there as part of our woodland. But then that was replaced by habitat for ground nesting birds and, and, and other songbirds and, and, um, and, and other wildlife. So, you know, that's why we end up with sort of these, you know, this balance in all of it. And, and yeah, I agree with you to hundred percent, Mark, there's room for all of it. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of these, a lot of the stuff we're talking about, the idea of management versus leaving some things to to nature to see where it takes it. Some of these ideas around balance, balancing hunting goals with your obligation to the land and trying to figure out what the right thing is to do. And then the idea of like taking in all these different people's perspectives too, right? All these different goals, these different perspectives, trying to layer all these different parts getting you to some kind of plan of like, what the hell do I do <laughs> that this whole thing kind of, it was like an individual listening. That's what each one of us is kind of trying to figure out. We're, we're looking at all these layers and ideas and perspectives and competing interests and then figuring out what do I do? And I personally have been kind of living that experience myself over the last, you know, six months or whatever, as we've been 
working through the back 40 project, trying to, you know, last year was learning about it. And then over the winter, it's okay. Now, what are we going to do? And now over the coming months, um, you know, assuming we can get through all this current event stuff, uh, hopefully, you know, executing on all these ideas. And so I've had to, you know, hear from a whole bunch of different people, take all their ideas. And then I'm trying to filter these ideas through, okay, through what our unique goals are, through what our unique circumstances are, through what our unique, you know, resource levels are and abilities are, and then choosing, okay, I think of all these things, we could do A, B, C, D, and and, and now I'm trying to, you know, do some of that. And you are a huge help in helping us come up with some of these ideas and helping me think through some of the things we can prioritize and how we might be able to do that. Um, so I'm planning on executing on a number of the things you talked about, but um, I want to pivot to that now. I want to kind of, maybe it's the right place to end as we've talked a lot of high level stuff. Now we can kind of talk some of like the concrete, small, actual projects or, or ideas or thoughts. You came out and saw the back 40 last year. We haven't really got to talk in any kind of public way about what you thought about it. Cause you know, we, we were a whole lot of stuff was filmed for the TV show. Very little actually makes it into the end episodes, you know? Um, so kind of curious, you've had a few months now to stew on your experience in the back 40. Um, you took a lot of time to put together some great recommendations, which we appreciate. I'm kind of just curious looking back on it now, what are your thoughts on the place? Uh, what are your thoughts on, I don't know, how it fits into these bigger issues we've talked about? I'm just kind of curious where you're at with the back four, your thoughts on it, your thoughts on the future, thoughts on the potential, anything like that. And then maybe I'd like to dive into a few specific things we're, we're going to try to do. Um, but let's start high level. Yeah. Well, um, the first thing I would say is that you Spent. I, I mean, I'm, I know I'm kissing your butt here a little bit, but this is a a, a a real compliment. You found a hell of a nice piece of property. I mean, if I was out looking for a property for a landowner, you know, for someone who's interested in buying land, I mean, and I didn't look around in that area, but it was clear to me that you did in our conversation. I was like, wow, this is a really nice mixed property. Not as much woods as some people would like, but mm -hmm. when you look at it from 5,000 feet in that area, it's not like there's huge wooded areas. Um, and so you've got a really nice mix of things there on that property. Um, and so that's the the first compliment. The, uh, the next one is, you have been thinking about this a lot in the last few months. I mean, I don't know. I was over there in when October. Yep. And um, yeah, and I mean, I, I I don't have it right here in front of me because my other my other laptop crashed and I didn't have to, I forgot to um, to to print it out. But I do have my notes here. But I think I gave you seven pages a lot of, stuff. Of, uh, of thoughts and ideas and questions and and all of that. And it wasn't like you should do this. It's here's something to think about. Yeah. Right. And that was because really, I looked at this when you guys had me come over there um, and and uh, let's see what we spent. Um, was that over there for uh, three days? days? Yeah. Well, parts like of three, you know, two full days and or parts of three days, whatever. A couple days over, a couple days there. Um, I, I drove over. And then we got there that first afternoon. And then we had that lovely weather, <laughs> uh, which I actually was a little disappointed. I'll be honest. I was a little disappointed that there wasn't more of us sitting in the rain. I know. Got cut. <laughs> That was actually a fun, I'm glad it happened though, because we got to just sit and talk for a while, yeah, um, yeah. which is nice. Well, and um, you proved to me, this guy knows how to figure out how deer travel. 
I mean, I was like every spot I looked at, like, okay, well, you've got to stand. Oh, you got to stand over there. Oh, okay, you got to stand. I mean, it's just like I was. I would put one over there. I, there wasn't. I really didn't have any of that. I was like, wow, Mark Kenyon really does know deer hunting. I try. I try. <laughs> so um, that was really interesting to me, and uh, you know, to sort of hear the, the thought process that you're going through now. Um, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to give you. Um, you know, some things to think about. I, I just think that 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 connectivity feature going through there where the, the power line goes through and, and that that stream uh, or swamp or whatever you want to call it. I mean, it seemed like there was water moves through there fairly regularly. Wow. Water's important. Um, you have that nice, that great bog down in there over there in the uh, whatever you were calling it, your honey hole or whatever. Yeah. I noticed I didn't really get over, get the chance to get over by it very much. But, you know, I'm the same way. I, I sell other parts of the farm to other people, you know, like, yeah, it'd be a great place to stand over there. And then I'm over here. <laughs> um, but, you know, fair enough. It was really fun to be a guest because I spent a lot of time having guests, Yeah, you know, on my property um, or on our property. Um, I really liked that it had the egg fields on it that were fallow um, because that's sort of a, blank canvas for you. Right. And, um, I think I encouraged you to consider, um, maybe putting some of that back into agriculture because, you know, what's wrong with a little farming? Um, and that, you know, those are, um, you know, sort of a neighborhood thing. This guy's already farms over in that area and there's some stuff towards the back and man, you know, if nothing else, it'll give you, it'll be a two or three years before that, um, uh, before you really start developing things there, because there's a lot. I mean, I, I gave you a lot, and I know with the other folks that you had out there, it was you know it was uh, important. I really liked that at the entrance to the property. Um, I think you and Steve had talked about pollinator habitat out there, and mm-hmm. you had somebody out there from NRCS. Um, uh, there were some areas that needed to be buffered a little bit, um, just to, and I don't mean to uh, close off people, but to screen, you know, from an aesthetic standpoint and from a wildlife standpoint to create some screening of, you know, maybe the road, the one neighbor and his, um, well, it's junk. (laughs) Um, and then not be able to necessarily see his, you know, his house and all that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought that was, uh, um, I think that's one of the big, one of the first opportunities. And and I know we talked about that during the winter is the opportunity to plant some trees. Um, And then it really becomes a question of, well, um, you know, where do you plant those trees? Uh, You do have invasive, invasive species control, invasive management. You're not going to get rid of them all. Um, But I'd love to see you get rid of some of the autumn olive uh it wasn't buckthorn uh what did my notes say it's, i think uh, the buckthorn is the worst but there are some autumn olive especially in that honey hole area yeah and so the big thing there is when you take something like that out is you're either going to leave a hole um and keep that and, and keep that invasive out or non-native you know sort of one man's invasive might be another man's non-native right <laughs> um but I mean, but, and then and then that would be you know sort of a spot where you might let's uh, think about introducing some uh, some native in there um, that that maybe have gotten shoved out by by all those invasives or non-natives. Right. Um, 
Uh, you know, the other thing that I don't know if I mentioned this when we were talking, and, I, and I'm pretty sure I put it into uh, into the report that I sent you, but was like all the other possibilities and stuff that I honestly don't know that much about, but I'm learning about all the time. And that is like from the perspective of some of these uh, gatherer uh, and forager types. Um, there's a, a woman out in Maine named Jenna Roselle who uh, – I, I follow her on Instagram and, and uh, have kind of, you know, I've chatted with her a bunch and I'd love to get her perspective on this because, I mean, she's she's like living off the land. And, yeah, she hunts and everything, too, but it's all of these other things that um, you and I might just look at from the standpoint of, uh, you know, it's just well, what is that? And, I mean, she sees the benefit of it and where our perspective might be, well, that's a problem. Um, I think she says something like, you know, end the war on weeds. Um, and then there's this this cat here in uh, in Wisconsin, uh, Mushroom Mike, and um, you know he's a guy who's actually built a business around he's actually um, growing mushrooms. And I think uh, Steve had contacted me a while yeah. ago, and one was that he had talked about was, hey man, what were those mushrooms that you grow and shiitake mushrooms? You know, um, just kind of a cool thing that somebody can do on their property, and it's something that's edible and all of that. And so Mike has sort of taken that um, perspective of stuff that you can forage and mushrooms you can find in the woods. And I've learned a bunch from him. I got to get that dude out here too. Um, Cause I don't know my wild mushrooms as, as well as I, as I could. And I know stuff is going to quote unquote waste. Right. Um, uh, but those kinds of opportunities are, are there too. Um, so, you know, what to do first, I guess, is the, is the, what you're really getting at. Right. Well, there's, yeah. That's that's the trick is is what to do first and what to fit into the small time we have. Um, but I, I, I before I forget, I got to dig in a little bit more on the mushroom thing because because ah. that is something we want to try. Um, it's kind of a fun little thing. Steve was mentioning this to me. Maybe maybe you're the one who told him about it. Is it true that we can actually spread mushroom spores proactively where we want them and get more mushrooms to grow on our place? almost like we're planting a crop, uh, but in a mushroom spore inoculation kind of way or whatever, whatever the right verbiage is. Um, maybe, um, I don't have, um, when I'm, when I started talking about shiitake mushrooms or lion's mane, which is another one, um, that's actually taking a, um, a, like a four foot stick of, of wood and in your case it would be oak i've used ironwood and, and oak too and then um, you actually inoculate those specific logs um i and i i just have to be frank i don't i don't have enough um knowledge about spreading spores i've read and seen people who've said they've done it with morels um and uh boy there's you've, there's a whole lot of other people who know way more about that than than i do and i that is something that um that this guy Mike would be uh, yeah, it'd be interesting uh, to in touch with him. him. It's something we kind of want to just give a shot as a a fun little different way to to get some different types of food from the place, you know. Well, right, and and then the other ones that I had mentioned to uh, Steve, he texted me when he must have been talking yeah, to me or Ben at that time because you know it's like random. He's just like randomly <laughs> texts me questions. Um, it was never <laughs> how you doing. Yeah, that tends <laughs> to be the way it goes. <laughs> He's a bit yeah, yeah, I need something from you. Um, but I love those. I love those. Uh, I, I, I love it when he reaches out to me like that. But I was talking about also, you know, like they're near your entry, you know, sort of traditional um, farmstead kind of stuff, like starting an asparagus patch 
um, uh, which doesn't take much, you know, it's a little bit of a little bit of Jimmy Dickin around, but it's, it's, it's not that much or planting, um, um, berry varieties that are still going to provide, you know, cover and all those sort of things. But, you know, um, um, planting some berry bushes because yep. you've got all that edge, right? Um, there's so much edge between the property uh, in within the property, those, those uh, wind or the, the field rows and uh, rock, there's rocks and all the trees and stuff. And you got stands in them and all that. Um, but though, and, and so those are the kinds of things too, that could be a part of that, right? So that you're planting, um, you're planting stuff that is forageable, you know, over time. Um, our, Rhubarb, I mean, it sounds crazy, but rhubarb is another one we plant. Uh, we have a rhubarb patch out at the farm, and it's just sort of there wasn't any, you know, for a long time. And it's just sort of one of those things that you put it in the ground, it kind of takes care of itself. And if you don't, um, you don't harvest it all or whatever, it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it just does what it does. And, and asparagus, wild asparagus, you know, grows in the ditches and stuff. Well, why not? Why not, you know, have some there near the entry that, you know, you pull in because you you've got that just that cool little spot where you pull in and I know we talked about a building and you know a bunch of other things too um but yeah. stuff that'd be handy right there so um you know that would be one the spore thing I'll have to uh I'll, I'll make a note of that and and uh and see if I can hook you up with somebody that um that yeah, has I'd more knowledge of it than um you. well I've kept you Longer than I expected, Doug. Um, so sorry about that. <laughs> I know you got stuff to do. Could you give us just a real little bit of insight into the tree planting thing, though? Because that's one of the first things that I want to do, and especially use your help to do it. Um, I feel like there's this idea that you have to plant, that you can only plant these little itty-bitty seedlings, and it's going to take 10 years before you get anything out of it. But you shared with me the fact that, you know, there are some kinds of ways you can get park grade trees and with some equipment, you can actually get some bigger, some bigger plants out on the landscape to, to do some of the things you talked about, creating structure, creating screening cover. Can you give me like the really quick overview on that? Because that's something that when you get out here, hopefully, um, we're going to dive a lot into. So I kind of want to set the stage. Yeah. So one of the things that you the property was lacking if that's the right word is a is a you know is evergreen cover and man um if that it's i think it's vital for all kinds of wild wildlife because um that evergreen cover gives deer a place to bed you know it's thermal cover and and all that's that sort of thing i'll say a couple of things um you can buy generally um and of course i've been in this business for a long time you can buy what are called park grade trees which are not ones that anybody's going to plant in their front yard and go you know that's a specimen right that's the perfect specimen of that um but when trees get planted in these plantations they um um you know some of them get misformed and and uh they just aren't you know aren't necessarily the the, the specimen tree um you can generally buy those at a discounted um rate um I know you had talked about Arbovita um, northern white cedar, which um, uh, I, I think I sent you some notes about what my concern yep. with is with them. I mean, they're they're great cover; they grow quick. They're you know they they go in the ground, but the deer also really like to eat them, and you can really see that as a problem. Um, but that you know that's that would be one. Um, I like to tend towards the natives, um, you know, white pine. Um, 
uh, is a great one. And and I was telling you earlier about those trees that, that I planted with my daughter. That was just, uh, she's getting her master's degree five years. And so it was, a, she was a senior in high school. And we planted 18 inch seedlings and we cut six and a half, seven foot white pines um, this year for, um, for our Christmas trees. Um, so they do grow fast, but a mix, so a mix of that would be a great opportunity. Um, and so those trees will be bald and burlapped. And we, you and I had, I kind of identified a couple of spots where, um, you know, you've got like a, an exposure, you can almost open it up, uh, that mm-hmm. there would be a, like a Southwest exposure and those evergreen trees would create this, this, uh, windbreak and, uh, thermal cover for, for deer and other animals to go in there and bed. And I'll tell you, man, um, that's a, also a great place to find sheds mm-hmm. because that's where they go and hole up in the winter time. So, if um, I know you were working on that, um, uh, that I, and, I, and I hope that we get the chance to plant trees because, uh, um, you know, both big and small. I mean, and that might be a good way of looking at that, right, is let's get some five and six foot um, uh, park grade, uh, you know, pine, spruce um, and arbovitus or cedars. And, uh, and then eastern cedars, the other one, too, which there might be some people cringing out there right now because they are – it's a native, but they, they tend to uh, invade. They tend to spread pretty quickly. Um, but they don't get like white cedar is soft and deer like to eat them. Red cedar, not so soft and deer don't like to eat them quite as much. They don't like to eat them at all, actually. Um, and then maybe get some smaller ones too, you know, so that, um, you know, five years from now that there'll be these, you know, you're impacting a bigger area. And I know the idea is that this property is going to be given away, but, um, in the short and long term, you know, short we have a short term impact and then yeah. a longer term impact as well. Yeah, plant small yeah, that's trees. Exactly, really what we want to do is is to attend to both of those time time ranges. So, well, hopefully things get cleared up here sooner than later with uh, the virus and travel begins again, and uh, you and I can spend some time digging holes and planting trees. So, yeah, right on, man. I mean, it's easy for me to, you know, I don't have to fly to come over there. Well. So, um, can figure that all out and um the the captured creative guys if they want to um you know come down and and ride over together or something like that i'll keep i well, can't keep six you can put you can put jordan in the bed of the truck <laughs> how about that <laughs> well doug uh thank you thank you thank you for taking so much time to talk through all this stuff um it was just what i personally needed was uh a palate cleanser, but then also a little bit of a therapy session at the beginning to kind of air out some of the thoughts on everything going on. Um, hey, I know you've got some cool stuff going on with your own um, with your own stuff. Is there anyone? Is there anywhere you want to point folks to keep up on new projects you're working on, or to connect with you, or anything else like that you want to share with folks? Oh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, you can, um, folks. You can find me on Instagram at Doug Duran. Simple enough. Um, I have a new web website that is under development, and along with that, there will be some merchandise that I have been promising um, for a while with the, um, the It's Not Ours, It's Just Our Turn um, theme. Um, so you keep an eye on me on Instagram, and that will be coming up, but we hope to have that all launched in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm actually looking at some kind of cool refrigerator magnets that were, were sent to me, um, but we'll have... Um, uh, We'll have that up real soon. And, and uh, yeah, the Instagram is the best place to keep track of me right now. And then the website will be up soon. And, 
and I will have some merchandise and and that may show up in another this that merchandise uh will likely be showing up in another location as well. So uh we'll uh I guess we'll leave it at that, Mark. Very but. cool. Well, uh, I've seen the shirts and hats. They look pretty awesome, Doug. So, I'm digging what you're doing and uh, appreciate your continued uh your continued efforts to educate people, to inspire people sharing your experiences and, and your knowledge, it's, it's making a difference and it's, it's helped me all out too. So, so thank you for all that, Doug. Yeah, man. And, and the same, you, um, uh, I, I just, I, I like looking at things from your perspective or hearing your perspective on things as well. And, and, uh, um, it, it, it keeps things fresh for me and, and, um, uh, and, you know, remembering that, uh, perspectives are important and and I look forward to it again there's a bunch of stuff we didn't get to and I asked people on Instagram if there was uh, anything they wanted us to talk about we touched on some of it that sounds good well here uh, late May let's let's hopefully still get together we'll plant some trees we'll do another podcast and uh, we'll have a good time all right thanks again Doug stay safe bye-bye take care buddy and that's a wrap so thank you for listening and until next time I just hope all of you can uh, stay safe stay healthy Wash your hands, follow the guidelines, be smart, uh, but also you know, stay positive. Get outside, enjoy the great outdoors. Uh, things, things are going to be okay if we can work through this together and be smart about things. So uh, I'm going to be crossing all my fingers and toes and keeping after it here with the Wired Hunt podcast and all the content over at Meat Eater. We're going to be pumping out as much as we possibly can to, uh, to keep you guys excited, to keep you informed and educated and entertained. And, uh, and smiling too. So thank you for being here with us. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.